thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. This week, how strapping lights onto fishing nets can help fishermen avoid catching the wrong sorts of fish, researchers work out what time of year the dinosaurs died out, and the device that boosts your solar panel power and gives you water for free. Plus, we're going to be discussing cyber warfare. Vladimir Putin has repeatedly threatened to unleash disruptive cyber attacks against a range of target countries. But what could these comprise and how much damage can he really do? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Let's kick off with uh, the news as we always do, and overfishing. Now, this has had a major impact over the years on our marine ecosystems. Apart from depleting fishing stocks, catching unwanted fish known as bycatch can disrupt food chains, it damages the natural world, and it can needlessly further endanger rare species. However, reducing the amount of bycatch while still maintaining profitable fishing enterprises has been very difficult. But now, new research is shedding some light on a possible solution – And Robert Spencer asked marine biologist Charlotte Berkmanis, who's at the University of Western Australia but wasn't involved in the present study, to take a look at the idea. So a lot of small-scale fisheries use gill nets, which are basically a, a net that is a curtain that is suspended in the water column and it catches a lot of fish. It especially catches a lot of larger animals that can't swim through the gaps in the net. If you have a boat and a couple of people to help you, you can catch a lot of fish with sort of minimal effort. And like everything, if something is too efficient, if you are catching too many fish, there's always going to be implications to the ecosystem. How much of a problem is bycatch? Is it a large amount that these nets in particular catch or is it just every now and then they find something they didn't intend to get? (laughs) I think a lot of the time they catch something that they don't intend to get. In fact, a study came out in 2020 and they estimated that 9.1 million tonnes are discarded annually, or that is almost 11% of the global catch. So they are targeting, as I said, tuna or something like that that has a high commercial value. And they actually get these other animals caught in the net as well. And it depends on the species. It can be sharks. It can be other animals that they're definitely not targeting, like dolphins, like turtles. A lot of fishermen, I do believe, do make a great effort to get them back in the water alive. But there's a lot of them that are just dead when they're pulled aboard. Can you describe what the study in current biology did in order to try and reduce the problem? Well, this was actually a very elegant study. This study got 
green LED lights and affix them to gill nets every approximately 10 metres on the net. And they also had other nets in the water which served as controls. And so controls are basically something that they put in the water at the same time in the same area to compare the two to see what's actually happening with these LED lights. And they found that the illuminated nets actually caught 63% less bycatch in total and that's over 80 percent fewer squid and 95 percent of fewer sharks and rays by weight so that is very effective in eliminating bycatch but the species that they were targeting they were still capturing so it was really a great study that showed that not only can we help conservation in the environment but we can also ensure that these fishes catch the fish that they want I mean, that's incredible that you've managed to select out over 90% of certain bycatch species, but not really reduce your target. Do we have any idea how that works? Why do the bycatch fish avoid a lit net and not the target catch? Well, that is the question. And that's what needs more research. We know that elasmobranchs, which are sharks and rays, this group does have highly developed visual systems. And this is what they noted in the study. But it's unclear if they were actually attracted to the net or deterred by the illumination. But it was obviously having some sort of a visual cue on them. But also the squid that were deterred as well. We know that they actually have enlarged eyes because they're predators. That's something that we need to look at in further depth. How do you power these lights underwater? Is it something that you sort of run cables back to land or they're battery operated? I believe these ones were battery operated and each one of these LED lights costs approximately eight US dollars. So if you're in a fishery that can afford it, that's great. But for a lot of these smaller fisheries, that price could actually be an issue. So the researchers are also looking into having these solar powered lights. So that would definitely make these smaller subsistence fisheries be able to use this method as well. So adding lights to your netting is presumably a a time-intensive and labour-intensive process. Is it worth it for these fisheries? As you say, there will be a cost for having these LED lights, but there's also a benefit. It also helps them by eliminating the time-consuming and cumbersome task of actually cleaning and untangling these nets and repairing them. If you get a big shark in the nets, it can actually rip your net, which is expensive and you've got to clean it. And it's also dangerous handling these large animals because they're not too happy being caught in this net either. So so there possibly is a an increased expense in having these lights, but perhaps it'll be a, a greater benefit in general of having them. Presumably if you catch an electric eel, then you get the lights for free. Who knows? That was Robert Spencer. He was talking with Charlotte Burke-Manis. You can hear and read more about that study in the journal Current Biology. Now, about 65 million years ago, an asteroid slammed into the Earth in a cataclysmic impact that, among other things, wiped out the dinosaurs. But, incredibly, scientists now think they know at what time of year this happened. PhD student Melanie During, who's at Uppsala University in Sweden, has found tiny balls of congealed glass made by the impact lodged in the gills of fish that died that day and were fossilised. And because fish grow at different rates at different times of the year, she was able to work out when they must have died, as she explains to Harry Lewis. When the meteorite hit, it's like throwing a bowling ball in a sandbox. Molten rock immediately gets expelled into space. And in space, they crystallize, but there's no gravity. It's a vacuum. So the lightest elements, they stay in the center. 
So you've got these balls that are often hollow in the center or glossy in the center, and then they rain back down on Earth. Those are impact spirals or tectites. And they have a fallback time of 15 to 30 minutes. And the second thing is that when the impact hit, uh, you get this shock wave going through the Earth. Of course, it's going to generate tsunamis in the direct ocean, but also on the continental plate, the overlying bodies of water, lakes, rivers, slush back and forth, back and forth, like a pool during an earthquake. And so this deposit with these fishes is a side deposit. It was caused by such a wave to go back and forth. So they alternate in the way that they are stacked up. So the fish are following this motion of the water. So they're either pointed maybe east or maybe west, whichever way it is, they're in polar kind of opposites. Yeah, it's east and west. Yeah, some of them are pointing in different directions, you know, when they hit the tree uh, or they're split open. It's a very violent deposit, but the majority of the fishes are following the direction. We expect that these small spherical pits of meteorite, that they've... They're they've... actually earth rock. They're earth rock that's been ejected into space. Yeah. And they are penetrating actually into the bodies of the fish. No, they're not. They are actually taken up in their gills. They were still swimming and looking for food when the first impact spirals hit. And they just sucked them up like they do with plankton and, and, and they choked on them. Right. And so through that, you're able to actually estimate what time of year these fish died. Yeah. So these fishes, they must have died on the day. The incoming wave and the impact spirals both should have come within an hour. So we know that they died on the day. And these fishes, they have bones that grow like tree rings, registering a new year every year. But growth is not homogenous. It's not like, oh, growth, non-growth, growth, non-growth. No, we can actually tell that in spring, growth gets started. Uh, you can tell that a food uptake begins, but it's not as high as in summer, for instance. And then autumn is much lower. And in, in winter, there's absolutely no growth. So... That's how we recognize. And we've got multiple seasons in multiple fishes. So we were documenting that. And all of them clearly died at the same time. And all of them clearly died when they were increasing their food intake again after winter, but not yet at the summer maximum. When this meteorite struck, we know roughly where it, where it was as well, right? So whereabouts was it? Yeah, it's a little town now called Chixcalup that is closest to the crater. And that's in the Mexican peninsula. So if you have the Gulf of Mexico, it's on that arch on the bottom, which was in the northern hemisphere when it struck. So I would say it's roughly three and a half thousand kilometers south of the location that I studied. And so what were what were the effects, you know, for the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere? Did they differ? So what did differ is that in the north, it was spring. And in the south, it was therefore autumn. So when you look at the behavioral life cycles of the organisms. Then in the spring, plants were producing seeds, their first leaves, flowers, animals were looking for food, tending to offspring. And in the southern hemisphere, they were preparing for winter. So plants were shedding their leaves, making them a lot more robust for, and many animals were seeking shelter and trying to prepare for winter. And especially that latter category, those underground may have just been in the right place at the right time when the meteorite struck. So we know that there's this transition, right, from what's around us today, from the dinosaurs to a very 
mainly populated mammal ecosystem. And this could have been due to the time of year in which the meteorite struck. Yeah, which is insane. I mean, to be able to extrapolate that out as well and to think of it not as a jigsaw puzzle for when it happened, for why our world looks the way it does. That's got to be pretty exciting for you to be able to connect these dots. It really is. And then you start looking up, okay, so what was the recovery time? And then you see that in the Southern Hemisphere, it looks like they recovered twice as fast. Where did turtles survive? Turtles survived in the Southern Hemisphere. Many of the modern birds survived in the Southern Hemisphere. I don't think that's a coincidence. Amazing story, isn't it? That was Harry Lewis, who was talking to Melanie during there. And those findings were published this week in the journal Nature. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and still to come this hour, cyber warfare and how Ukraine's SOFA army are fighting back from their bedrooms. Before that, though, Saudi Arabia has a lot of sun and a lot of space, so it can grow solar power pretty well, but not food. It's a hot, dry desert after all. But now that might be about to change because researchers have been testing a system in Jeddah that extracts water from the arid air of the desert and it uses it to grow crops in a greenhouse and cool down the solar panels so they work better. It hinges on a special material that works a bit like a sponge and this soaks up water from the damp, cool air at night and then during the day, waste heat from the photovoltaic or PV electricity generating solar panels drives off the water again keeping the panels cooler, which means they work 10% more efficiently. And piped into the greenhouse, the water can then enable you to grow food, even in a desert. Now, that same technology could help thirsty countries and counties like Cambridgeshire, which are predicted to face much drier summers in future through the effects of climate change. The technology is the brainchild of researcher Pen Wang. The essence of getting water is to have a special material. That material can harvest individual water molecule from air. And this happens typically in the evening or at night when the temperature is low and the humidity is high. During daytime, the heat coming from PV drives the water to evaporate out of this material then you have the cooling because evaporation takes heat away. This reduces the PV temperature and then let the PV to give us more electricity. Is the material that's doing the soaking up of the water at night time from the air separate from the panel and you send heat from the panel to that material to drive the water off or is it intrinsically within the panel material? In our design, we have our material stuck on the backside of the PV panel. So this way, the heat can naturally flow into the material and uh, drive the water evaporation. So in essence, then, we've got a system that's storing water at nighttime, which it's soaking up from the cooler nighttime air. The system that's capturing heat during the day is passing that heat into this water reservoir, driving the water off 
cooling itself in the process and you're capturing the water, which you can then send to a system that will use that water to grow food. Precisely. How much water are you able to get out of the system? For our experiment, we were able to produce about one liter per day per square meter. We still believe there's a lot of room for further improvement. And if you talk to your plant science colleagues, do they think this is a viable option? Many people believe so, because in Saudi Arabia, there's no river, and this technology gets water from nowhere. It does not rely on conventional water sources to produce water. Therefore, with small amount of water being produced, by this system. If you can utilize this very precious water for beneficial purpose to meet very basic human demand, that would be that would be great. It would indeed. Pen Wang there, he's at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. A strange new trend is being reported by psychiatrists around the world. An increase recently in the number of teenagers with new tick-like behaviors. That's tick without a K. Now this has become particularly marked since the pandemic kicked off and it coincides also with a surge in social media and online video consumption. So scientists suspect that some people who are susceptible to tick conditions, like Tourette's, when exposed to videos of others with ticks, can develop them themselves. Julia Ravy reports. So I'm just on TikTok and I'm looking up the hashtag for... Tourette's. The hashtag Tourette's has 5.5 billion views. And some of the top videos are an individual with Tourette's trying to do a COVID test, an individual trying to drink a Coke. And there's also a video here of a young girl with these jerk-like motor movements who's asking, why is this happening to me? So this looks like an individual who has recently developed tick-like behaviours. There's no doubt that these videos are raising awareness of what it is like to live with tick-like behaviours, but are they having an impact beyond that? Jessica Fry from the University of Florida told me what they've been seeing in their clinics over the past year or so. Increased onset of tick-like behaviour, and there is a concern that there is some social media influence involved in the onset of some of these tick-like disorders. One of the things we're seeing is a lot of the patients that come to us with these new onset ticks, they're mimicking a lot of well-known social media influencers. And so they have the same exact or very similar ticks to the ones that they've seen in the videos. There have been historical incidences of functional conditions spreading through populations. There was something called mass hysteria where one person kind of got some sort of thing and then everyone in the school got this same type of thing. And that's on a much grander scale now with social media use because it's everywhere, like viral content going kind of worldwide. And being exposed to this content with viral videos of tick-like behaviours could influence those who already have tick-like conditions or are susceptible to them. The tricky part, of course, is that people who have Tourette syndrome or organic tics, a very common manifestation is if they see people with tics, that can actually be a trigger for their own tics and make them tick more. Since the pandemic, with more teens being isolated and online, 
The occurrence of people coming across tick-like behaviour videos has no doubt increased, which could be a good or a bad thing. Jessica and colleagues are now trying to understand if social media is impacting tick-like behaviours and have started with a small study looking at the link between social media usage and tick severity. We did see some correlative data between the social media use as well as tick severity. There is no correlation between social media use and tick frequency. And what was particularly interesting was only 5% of participants actually reported using social media to look up things related to ticks and Tourette syndrome. This was a surprise because our hypothesis going into this was that if you're going to be watching more videos on social media related to tics and Tourette syndrome, that may generate more severe, more frequent tics. So we did see a correlation, but don't really have an explanation for the causation quite yet. These results can be hard to untangle given that stress is a known influencer of increased tic-like behavior. Given the pandemic, the increased social media use, which one is it? You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the anxiety driving the ticks? Is it the social media use? Is it the pandemic? Is it one of those causing the other? So we don't really know. While larger studies go on to unpick this, Jessica and others have seen one technique which has been found to help reduce tick-like behaviours in some instances. Anecdotally, we've seen that if we educate patients about where they are getting their information from and they kind of stop and reduce their social media use, a lot of times the ticks get better. It's good to hear, isn't it? I wonder if you get a tick off TikTok, does that make it a TikTok tick? Jessica Frey there from the University of Florida, ending that report by Julia Ravy. Now, we began this section of the programme in the underwater world, so let's head back there. Have a listen to this. Now that is what you would hear were you to dangle an underwater microphone into the koi carp pond at Kew Gardens. In other words, the underwater realm is a noisy place and the sounds that you can hear there are a giveaway for who's around and in what sorts of numbers. That, in turn, can be used to gauge the health of the local ecosystem. And so scientists want to build a global reference library of these sorts of sounds. Evelina Wang caught up with Exeter University's Sophie Nidalek to hear what she's got in mind. There are so many animals that make sounds underwater, it's incredible. So all of the mammals that live in the water make sounds, we believe. So that's about 126 mammals. There's about 34,000 fish species that live in the water And so far, we know that at least a thousand of those make sounds, but the real number is likely more. It's just that we haven't found them yet. And then there's about 250,000 known marine invertebrates. And out of those, we know of at least 100 that make sounds as well. Wow. I understand how whales and dolphins and seals can make sounds, but how do fish and invertebrates do it? So fish have incredible ways of making sounds. Many fish have a sonic muscle, which they can vibrate or drum onto their swim bladder. It's like a little bubble of gas that's inside their bodies. So we have a plainfin midshipman fish that produce a kind of a humming sound as their love song. Other fish rub their teeth together, like clownfish, like in the film Nemo. 
And then in terms of the the bivalves, you can often hear where there's the sound of a kind of clacking and shuffling, which comes from the shells knocking together as well. Even oysters make sounds I never knew. So you have all of these recordings. What can you learn from them? So all of these sounds can be really useful to monitor where there are areas of healthy habitat or where there are areas where habitats might be shifting in their distribution because of climate change or maybe deteriorating in quality. So snapping shrimp, perhaps, for example, are very small, but they make one of the loudest sounds that comes out of any animal under the water. Uh, So they make a snap by clacking together um, two parts of one of their claws. And their claw shuts so quickly that it actually creates a cavitation bubble. And that bubble snaps shut with so much force that it momentarily creates energy that's as hot as the surface of the sun. So these shrimp can actually be really useful because they tell us about the health of a coral reef as well as just, you know, that they're there being shrimp. (laughs) So the healthier a coral reef is, the more of these snapping shrimp sounds that we can find. Also, the more um, fish vocalizations that we find as well. So, Sophie, you are part of the team trying to establish this global library of underwater biological sounds. What are the main goals of this project? What we really want to call for is a global level of library where these sounds are being shared around the world. And that will mean that it's open access so that anybody can contribute to it and anybody can use it. We need now more than ever to be able to catalogue what animals can be found in the ocean and where they can be found as we're losing biodiversity at alarming rates um, and involve citizen scientists in this effort as well. So if a person is to make some sound recordings under the water, then they might be able to upload it to the library and that would help identify what species people are encountering. I think the underwater world often can suffer from an out of sight, out of mind problem when it comes to engaging with it and protecting it. Mm -hmm. But this could be a a way for an average person to engage more in their local blue habitats. Sounds good to me. That was Sophie Nedelik and she was speaking with Evelina Wang. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Welcome back. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Ukraine is at war with Russia, but as other countries rally to support and equip the Ukrainians, Vladimir Putin has repeatedly threatened reprisals. He's singled out the UK in particular as being in the firing line and in his arsenal alongside the nuclear threat he's already put on the table and Russia's track record of poisonings are potentially disruptive cyber attacks. But what would these comprise and how much damage can Vladimir Putin really do 
and what can we do to stop him? Also, as Putin strangles the Russian free media, blocking the BBC and banning his own commercial outlets to manipulate the narrative that's being fed to the Russian public, we'll be considering how social media is changing the terms of engagement in 21st century conflicts. Is it as much a battle over online information as boots on the ground? With me for this part of the programme is mathematician and naked scientist intern Robert Spencer, who's been working on this week's programme. Hello, Chris. Yes, coming up, we'll hear from the experts in the cybersecurity industry to find out how worried they are, and we'll consider whether cyber warfare is governed by the same rules, such as the Geneva Convention, that guide traditional warfare. But first, we're going to hear from Ukrainian law student Solomir. She's part of Ukraine's SOFA army of keyboard warriors who are using the power of social media to counter misinformation and share the reality with people worldwide, including, critically, in Russia, so the Russian public can hear what Vladimir Putin is trying to stop them finding out. She spoke earlier this week with our own James Titko. Hi, Solomir. How are you? Yeah, thank you. Hello. We are good. We are in a safe place now and everything's kind of all right. I was wondering if for the benefit of our listeners, you could tell us a bit about where you're from and how life has changed in the past week. So I'm originally from Kyiv. I'm studying law. When the news first broke of the war starting... What were those first few days in Kiev like? So everything started at 4 or 5 a.m. There were sirens and it was the most terrifying moment. After two days, when we were in Kiev under these explosions and bombs, we decided to leave the city. And now we are in the western part of Ukraine with my grandmother. I'm worried for all those people who are in Kiev right now. I have a lot of friends that decided to stay there. Also, my grandparents are still in Kyiv, and I'm really worried about them. Every night, I dream about something with war in it. So it's either we need, we need to go to the shelter or just some shootings. But like every night in my dreams, I see war. How are you keeping up to date with the situation at the moment? We're using TV, of course. Also, we have a lot of uh, information going through Instagram. And I don't know if you know about this messenger called Telegram. It's really popular in Ukraine. And we have some channels on Telegram, like verified our government, some verified news sources. And we're trying to use all of these accounts because others can be just fake or spread some Russian misinformation. Have you been given any particular instructions on how to act online since the start of the conflict? Yes. So, like, firstly, our government said us to only use our governmental sites, not to believe any other accounts. So we need to check information to know that it's not some uh, Russian propaganda. Also, uh, our military officials, they ask us not to take photos of any soldiers, any of our tanks, planes, like anything, because it can be used by by our enemy. And also, they asked us not to take photos of explosions and some bombings, because Russians, they can like correct their distance and like where they shoot according to these photos. You talked about government websites. I was wondering if there's been any interference and how, if at all, this has affected you. The first few days, we had some problems with a few of our sites. There were some problems with banks, also with a few of our governmental sites. I think it was Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
but it was only like the problem with working websites. So there was no problem inside these uh, banks and uh, these ministries. They were working, working all right. This was different to any other in the amount of information available online to people on all sides. I was wondering if at all you felt like you've contributed in any way to the Ukrainian resistance because of the online aspect of this war. A lot of people my age, they're doing some work on online. For example, uh, I was reporting some channels and accounts on different social media. So there is a problem with accounts that are uh, just filming our military and saying what it is located. So we're trying to block these channels. Uh, also, I was uh, giving reports to some uh, Russian Instagram celebrities because I was spreading lies about the war. They were saying that everything's all right. It's not a lie because we've seen all these pictures from Kyiv and what I've seen like myself. So I can say, for example, one of Russian singers, he uh, wrote something about the whole situation, like saying that Russia never invaded anyone. And now uh, when you go to his Instagram and you see this post, uh, Instagram is saying that this information is false. Uh, also, I know uh, a lot of people, um, they are going to just some Russian websites, Russian groups, and they are starting messaging messaging them. Uh, they are sending them photos of uh, our cities, of what's going on. And the same is going on like in Google Maps. So I've seen a lot of my friends, they just go to, for example, some uh, really luxurious uh, Moscow restaurant. And in like reviews of the restaurant, they are writing what's going on in Ukraine and sending pictures there. Was there anything else about the cyber aspect of this conflict? Anything that has you particularly worried that might happen or has already happened? We spread some information about like the situation in our cities uh, with people we know. So if you go to someone's Instagram story, it's really like it, likely that you'll see uh, something like we, we've seen some saboteurs here. Uh, or some information like we need help. There is a mother and, like, for, for example, two two months old child, and we need to take them from this city. Who is going there? If someone needs some medicine or food, someone's trying to help each other. We already like took these people from this dangerous uh, region. Now they are in in a safe place. I'm truly in awe of your bravery and the way you've spoken today and I think you've done something really great so thank you so much for that yeah thank you for for asking <laughs> thanks very much to Slomia she was speaking with our own James Tico. it's interesting Robert what she said isn't it about the guidance not to share information about say the footage of bombs landing because the enemy could use that for ranging purposes Yes, and I think it's not only impact craters and sort of where they land, but also objects in flight. We know it's possible with a lot of work to use casual video recordings to calculate trajectories of objects in flight, such as the Shebelinsk meteor in 2013, which was famously photographed by a large number of car dash cams, and we worked out its origins from that. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Now, we were hearing just there about the visible use of the internet and social media to support war efforts. But what about the invisible subterfuge that's going on behind the scenes? 
Well, joining us live to help unpack the cyber aspects of war is cyber security expert from the SANS Institute, and that's James Lyon. James, what do we mean by cyber warfare, or is this very much a moving target? It is a bit of a moving target and quite a broad term. We're all using technology around us all the time, in our homes, in our hospitals, in our cities, at every moment in our lives as we interact with the world. And unfortunately, building technology without flaws is impossible. So security researchers or cyber criminals or governments can find these flaws. And where the former will use that to help businesses become more secure, the latter could use it to gain access to systems, maybe remote controlling them, distributing nasty malicious code that steals usernames, passwords, or or maybe even wipes or manipulates data. It can also involve manipulation of sentiment on social media. We've just heard from Slomir about some very, very you know, wise practices about caution of disinformation online, checking the validity of news sources and care and sharing intelligence. Most of the time, cyber criminals take actions focused on making money, stealing data for extortion and so on. Cyber warfare is the idea these techniques can be used as a part of a nation state or integrated military campaign. Cyber war, which is a more serious but very similar term, is actually a bit of a a sticky subject for us experts because war has a very specific definition, a requirement for scale Mm. and life and impact. It's interesting you bring that up, though, James, because one of the things, mm. the criticisms being levelled at Vladimir Putin's attacks is that he keeps on bringing down civilians and civilian targets in the crossfire. So what sorts of targets would people tend to go for in the cyber space? Or actually, are targets that are civilian targets the very targets that you want to target in cyber warfare? I think we all, when we hear about the notion of cyber war and cyber warfare in the media, tend towards the idea of targeting missile silos and power stations, which has actually happened. But a lot of the time, it's targeting information sources, it's targeting civilians, it's targeting social media. A lot of the time, it's trying to draw attention away from true motives. And indeed, that's a lot of what seems to be happening in the Ukraine at the moment. The UK National Cybersecurity Centre, the Department of Homeland Security, warned of potential substantial Russian cyber attacks like have happened before, more on the serious infrastructure side. But to date, they've not really been that advanced, not having a kinetic impact. They've mostly been distributed denial of service, which is knocking a site or service online, a a bit like getting 20 of your friends together and going to a supermarket and filling up the rotating doors so no one can get in. And Russia, by the way, has form for these tactics. They were used against Estonia back in 2007. Is it just a question then that governments of all colours and flavours have got an army of people sitting in rooms at computers, basically just knocking on doors of computers wherever they can all over the world to just try and force entry somewhere and and find vulnerabilities is that what's happening you've just got people who are relentlessly plowing around the world looking for things that they can hack into well in effect yes espionage has been something countries the world over have engaged in forever cyber provides an asymmetric opportunity to get information intelligence or cause disruption so of course everyone is escalating their efforts into this domain What's interesting, having just said um, that so far most of the examples from Russia have been very basic, you know, there are a couple of attacks they purportedly executed. It is rather difficult sometimes to attribute these attacks, particularly because nation states will often contract with cyber criminals 
for plausible deniability, kind of mm. like a, a cyber reserve with less ethics. They've been known to target power stations, indeed, back in 2015, causing a blackout that plunged a couple of hundred thousand Ukrainians into darkness for a few hours. James, thanks very much. That's James Line. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Robert Spencer. And this week, prompted by the Russian attack on Ukraine, we're talking about cybersecurity and digital warfare. Coming up, are people sitting on their sofas hacking to help Ukraine nevertheless counted as combatants? We'll find out. But first, how does one actually go about launching a cyber attack? Well, to find out, I roped in two experts from digital specialists ANS and pitted the two of them against each other in a mock scenario, a sort of boxing match, if you will. And I asked them to take me through how you would both attack and defend a system. In the red corner. Hello, I'm Chris Falkert. I'm the Infrastructure Director at ANS. And on defence in the blue corner... Hello, I'm uh, Stephen Crow, and I'm our Head of Security at ANS. Between them is our battleground, a fictional online store called Mrs Miggins' Violin Shop. Chris will be trying to attack it, and Stephen will be trying to thwart him and protect Mrs Miggins and her stringed instruments. I'll be your commentator, but it's Chris who has the first move. There's something called the Cyber Kill Chain, which is a step-by-step approach that people will take when they're doing a planned attack. The first thing to do is a little bit of reconnaissance, like you would do in any other operation, so I can get a good idea of what I'm going to try and attack. Next step is trying to gain entry. Normally, as much as the movies like to portray that it's always the technology you attack first, humans are often the weakest link when it comes to the security chain. So what you'll try and do around that is first look at some social engineering, and that can take the the form of me phoning in and pretending to be IT support or their service provider, or me sending them a phishing email. Already, Stephen has his work cut out for him. How does one protect the system from the humans up? Yes, so the best way to try and defend against social engineering and attacks against the human is through rigorous amounts of security training. What might be a phishing email? What is a a dodgy application that you shouldn't be downloading from the internet? But in our fictional scenario, perhaps this hasn't worked, and Mrs Miggins has clicked on a link and revealed her passwords or credentials. What does Chris do with the foothold? So it depends what's happened. If it has worked, I can move on. If it doesn't, then I need to go into a technological scanning section, and that's where we start looking for vulnerabilities in the system. Most often, these vulnerabilities come in the form of bugs in the code, pieces of software that aren't working quite as they're supposed to. The databases are long lists of these bugs found by other people. They're given serial numbers like CVE 20140160, more commonly known by the moniker Heartbleed. There's databases of thousands and thousands of known vulnerabilities. If I can't find one of those, if I have a big enough development team, you can go in with one known as a zero day. It's called zero day because it's being used before it's been declared to the wider internet, which is one that you found, you own, and you can go in without as much risk of being detected. So Stephen has his work cut out, not only against these vulnerabilities published on the internet, but also against the zero day attacks. Unfortunately, against zero days, you're completely on the back foot from a defensive point of view, and there's not much you can do about that. Um, But from a vulnerable application point of view, having a vigorous vulnerability management program in place is the the best way to, to stop that. Both sides now watching those lists like hawks, either to exploit the vulnerabilities or patch them up as fast as they can. But often the defense is a step behind, as with zero days. What happens when the line is broken? So it depends really on on what the the person attacking your website is trying to do. If I'm there to take the website offline, you will have an immediate, very observable cause that suddenly it's gone offline, monitoring will alert. If I'm there because I'm wanting to steal 
people's bank details or I want to um, get day-to-day -day intelligence on what's going on in the business, I may have installed my own software inside there to make the system behave differently or ship information out to me very subtly in the background. Two very different situations there. What happens in the first case when the site is taken down? Alarm bells go off and what we'd do there is if it was due to an exploit that we knew about, we'd have to work out how that's been taken down, work out how we can fix the, the exploit and then bring the website back up in a, in a secure manner. If a malicious actor has gained access to our infrastructure, this is where we rely heavily on our technology. So we, we rely on the software to say, hang on a minute, something fishy is happening over here. That's really where it turns into a game of cat and mouse, especially when you're moving outside of, say, Mrs. Miggins' violin shop and into a, a large corporate network. A lot of the aims behind those sort of attacks, it's looking at, can you navigate around their network? Can you start looking at other systems you can get into now you've got this initial foothold into the network? Or is there a, an end goal that you're looking for a bigger target somewhere inside the network? So it becomes a cat and mouse game there of trying to lay low whilst they're looking for you. Uh, there's a number of techniques that you can take to do that. And there's a number of behavioural traits you can do as well around disguising, say, the, the mass transit of data that Stephen was talking about. Do you reduce it to a trickle and extricate it over a long period of time? Do you disguise that traffic to look like routine traffic inside the organisation? So now we have a game of spy v spy. Attackers trying to sneak in and around, stealing secrets, while the defence team have to notice, find and neutralise them. But if the attackers are being subtle, is there anything the defenders can do? Yes, definitely. So this comes back to the term that we use in the industry of defence in depth and thinking of cybersecurity as a bit like an onion. You need to have a lot of layers in there, architecting your infrastructure in a, in a secure manner. Much like medieval castles which had walls within walls to protect your computers, you set up firewalls between them, layering your defences one over the other. You should really put in some, some like blocking or firewalls in between each of those devices to make sure that if one of them's compromised, there's no lateral movement in your network to stop an actor getting from one to the other. It's always one team being on the back foot and then the other. There's always new vulnerabilities being discovered and I don't think there will ever be a point where software is perfect. Um, but equally, it, it, as part of that arms race, there's always better and better detection technologies coming out as well. Yeah, and um, from my perspective, we... we uh... We go by the philosophy, it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. And it's happening right now, all around the world in every data centre and server farm. No clear winner and a continual game of cat and mouse. The verdict, so far, a draw. And the audience goes... Well, the audience doesn't even know the fight has started. Indeed, as one person said to me, there are two kinds of companies on the internet, Robert. Those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. We were listening there to Chris Falkard and Stephen Crow. They were from ANS. Um, we shouldn't forget, of course, that cyber war is still war. People can get hurt. It does have very real impacts on military strategies. Conflict in general, though, is governed by the Geneva Convention and other international agreements. So is cyber conflict similarly regulated? It's an interesting question, and I put it to Dr. Heather Harrison-Dunnis, a senior lecturer at the International Law Centre of the Swedish National Defence College. The basic answer is yes, it is. Um, the vast majority of states agree that the law of armed conflict applies to cyber operations exactly the same as it applies to other operations. There are a handful of states who disagree with that. Those states include China and Russia. The easy part is saying that the principle of distinction, that you have to distinguish between military objectives on the one hand and civilian objects on the other and only target um, military objectives, 
it's easy enough to say, well, that applies whether it's bombs, whether it's bullets, whether it's bit streams. But the more difficult part of that is saying, well, what amounts to an attack in cyberspace? How does that part work? Is it that you have to cause physical damage? Or is it enough that you just take it offline for a while? How is that differentiation typically done? We have this sort of definition of what a military objective is. So something that by its nature, location, purpose or use offers a definite advantage. And the second part is its neutralization offers you the advantage. So something by its nature, for example, would be a military communications network. It's a military by nature, therefore it's a military objective. We define civilian objects in the law as anything that is not a military objective. Um, GPS is dual use. It's a military satellite system, but it's used so heavily by civilians. The trick with that, though, is that just because something is a military objective doesn't automatically mean that you can target it. So there are other principles, such as the principle of proportionality, which says that you need to take into account the effect that it will have on civilians. Are there any objects which are specially protected? I'm thinking in in traditional warfare, medical facilities, medical staff enjoy internationally recognized protection. Does the same hold for cyber objectives? Absolutely. And those special protections also extend to what we call installations containing dangerous forces. And that is dams, dikes, and nuclear power generating systems is of particular interest. Are cyber weapons that precise? To be honest, is one of the beauties of cyber weapons. They can be incredibly discriminate. It would be unlawful to craft a piece of code that could not distinguish. So there are other pieces of malware out there, it's malicious software, that we've seen rampaging through the internet that really just doesn't care whether it's a military computer or a civilian computer. It just tries to spread as much as it can. There's also distinction in in relation to people. Uh, and, And again, it's this broad distinction between you can target those who are fighting, combatants, members of the armed forces of the state, but also civilians who are directly participating in hostilities. And I think that's something that people need to bear in mind, because what we are seeing in these conflicts, and, and we've seen over the past few days, people coming out saying, well, I'm, I'm hacking in support of Russia, or I'm, I'm hacking against Russia. People do need to bear in mind, if you are actively participating in hostilities, you become a lawful target. So sitting behind your computer and attacking in cyberspace is legally similar to taking up arms and attacking in the real world. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And I would also point out there is nothing in the law that says that you have to be targeted in the same manner that you were targeting others. Bottom line, even if you hack, you could still be shot. That is sobering, isn't it? Heather Harrison Dennis there. Does that mean that Slomia, Robert, and her friends that we heard from at the top of the programme, and they were describing review bombing Moscow restaurants with the real deal from what's happening in Ukraine. They're actually classed as combatants then. Well, after our interview, I got back in touch with Heather to ask her that exact question. So she replied that no, they are not combatants because they are not taking a direct part in hostilities. In brief, they haven't adversely affected the military ability of anyone involved in the conflict or caused harm to protected people or objects. 
Are they still protected by the law despite what they've been doing then? They are. She also adds this interesting fact. If someone were to engage in cyber warfare, they only lose their civilian protection for the duration of the attacks they are making. Once they stop making cyber attacks, they regain that civilian protection. That sounds murky though, doesn't it? Because could you not get people flipping and flopping between saying, well, I was hacking yesterday, but I'm not hacking today. So I'm all right today. You didn't catch me yesterday when I was at it. It gets down to the level of I was hacking when I was in my living room and now I'm in my kitchen. It's incredibly murky. Well, still with us is cybersecurity specialist James Line. James, do you think this kind of vigilante information war and also cyber warfare is something we're going to see more of in the future? Because it's certainly been something people are commenting on as being almost like a first, that we haven't really seen a war where this has been so prominent in the past. I think there's an inevitable trajectory towards more use of cyber warfare tactics or cyber crime with aligned interests, just because we're placing more and more technology around us at every moment. And that just makes it you know, rife for opportunities. Now, this has been building for some time. There have been attacks as far back as you know the early 2000s against industrial control systems and power stations. But of course, this is starting to put it into a new level of light to the public in light of the horrific events in the Ukraine. So, so I would certainly say this is something we are going to see more of. And we need to remember that throughout this program, we've talked about you know military actions and intelligence. We've also talked about how individual businesses can be targeted. And whilst the Russians are probably not taking time out right now to target Mrs. Miggins' violin shop, that doesn't mean that they couldn't be part of a campaign of cyber criminals or or used as part of a more substantial nefarious attack. So it's important we're all following cybersecurity safety practices. This isn't just a government thing. I know that this is obviously prominent right now, but have many of these actors already been preparing the ground for many years? For instance, we're buying wholesale bits of equipment from other countries. Is it possible that there are lots of backdoors that we're unaware of and they could be then activated to, to call up an army of, of devices that we've all got in our homes and all around us or they can access those backdoors when they want them? Without wanting to um, cause people to start ripping technology out of their homes left, right and centre. Yes, supply chain attacks have occurred on significant scale attributed to to nation states as as well as cyber criminals multiple times uh, over the past few years. So sourcing technology, particularly to put into sensitive places like power, water, utilities and telecoms, is something that has to be done very carefully. It is very much an active risk as we depend on technology more and more. So it, it is crucial that you know, as individuals, we're constantly looking at our use of technology and thinking about, you know, the validity of information we're accessing, thinking about how technology may be manipulating us. And then, of course, governments and businesses have huge responsibilities in securing and sourcing these, you know, very crucial pieces of infrastructure like 5G, like power and water that have demonstrably been attacked by nation states in the past. James, thank you very much indeed. That's James Lyon from the SANS Institute. Robert. So we've been seeing how cyber warfare is just one part of the battles waged over bitstreams. Information wars and controlling the narrative can be just as important. 
However, when deployed as a tool to support kinetic forces or to prepare the battleground, it can be powerful indeed. Used in a conflict, it's regulated in a similar way to traditional combat, but there are a lot of legal details that need ironing out. And as we move to a more interconnected world, the only thing that's certain is that it's here to stay. Well, let's move on now and finish, as we always do, with a complete change of tone and topic. It's our question of the week. And this week, we are listening out for that tiny voice in your head. How do I hear a voice in my head when I'm thinking? And can this voice be influenced by accents? When you hear a voice while you are reasoning or thinking, Fiona, you probably notice that it helps you to focus on your thoughts. That inner voice you hear is considered a simulation of actual speech production. Helen Lovenbrook from Grenoble Alps University is here to explain. Speaking aloud requires sophisticated coordination of the movement of our speech organs. We constantly have to adjust the commands sent to our speech muscles so that our movements are correct. Sometimes we make speech errors and we can correct ourselves. And sometimes we can hear these slips even before we make them. This is because we have an internal simulator which allows us to predict the sound that will result from the muscle commands being issued. That inner speech you are hearing is precisely the simulator, but without the motor functions being carried out. Commands are not sent to the muscles, and articulation does not occur, yet we can hear the simulation, or the inner voice. This inner voice is a lot like our actual voice, and for some people, the voice has the person's own accent. In an interesting study, Researchers at the University of Nottingham have shown that silent reading can be influenced by regional accents. So like how in the south of England, we might rhyme grass with farce, for example, but someone in the north might rhyme grass with mass. They compared the eye movements of northern and southern English participants when reading limericks. The study found that eye movement behaviour was disrupted when the final word did not rhyme as determined by the reader's accent. This suggested that participants produced inner speech with their own accent while reading. That's very interesting. But you mentioned that this was only for some people. What about everyone else? Some people do not hear an inner voice when they read, and some people do not even hear a voice when they talk to themselves. This is called auditory verbal aphantasia. Then there are those who rarely use words when they think at all but rather images or abstract symbols. There are many questions about the versatility of inner speech which remain unanswered. So Fiona, that inner monologue you are hearing is best thought of as a simulation of your actual voice, kind of like a trial run to smooth out any of the creases before we attempt actual speech. It occurs even when we have no intention of saying anything out loud and is affected by accents, as researchers at the University of Nottingham have found. Thanks to LN for offering her expertise on the topic. Next week, we'll be tackling this head-scratcher from listener Marion. So I've noticed that when I scratch, the itch tends to move to another part of my body, and I just wondered why this happens. Why indeed. So if you can help scratch Marion's itch for knowledge, or you have a question of your own, why not let us know? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. That is it for this week. Do join us next time, though, to find out why we are creatures of habit, why, for instance, our New Year's resolutions just so hard to stick to, and what can we do to alter our behaviour long term? Assuming, of course, we want to.
The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.